listening to Make It, a podcast by Bonsai Creative that helps creatives in film get where they're going faster by sharing the advice, knowledge, and insights of professional creatives across the film industry. I'm your host, Chris Barkley. My name is Alexi Gambis, and I'm a writer, director, and also a biologist. Uh, you may know me for the film Son of Monarchs, Hijo de Monarcas, that recently premiered at the Sundance Film Festival. But in addition to that, I'm also the founder of the Science New Wave, which I'll talk about. And, um, and I'm also the founder of a film festival called the Imagine Science Film Festival. And right now I'm working on a few films, but the one that is kind of next in the pipeline is about a indigenous activist um, that sort of befriends a biologist to resurrect a jaguar that lives in the Amazon. And uh, hopefully we'll be shooting that soon and super excited to be here uh, with you for, for this conversation. Alexi Gambis, welcome to the Make It Podcast. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Anytime. I'm just pumped to have you on. You are a true multi-hyphenate. Uh, you do a little bit of everything, uh, and you come from a brilliant perspective. Let me give the audience a little bit more perspective on who you are. I'm going to read a little bit from your bio. Alexi Gambus is a French-Venezuelan filmmaker and biologist. His films combine documentary and fiction, often embracing animal perspectives and experimenting with new forms of scientific storytelling. In 2008, he founded the Imagine Science Film Festival that recently celebrated its 13th year of showcasing science and film from around the world. In 2016, he launched the sister portal Labocene, and we'll talk about that a little bit, coined the Netflix for Science. Uh, the VOD platform provides a virtual ecosystem to experience science cinema. <laughs> That's so science cinema you heard that right in all its flavors by hybridizing forms and fostering a dialogue between scientists artists and educators and i want to start with a quote you have uh, to get us into that realm again you've created the the netflix for science if you will uh with lavacine so let's 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 i want let's start with a quote uh you said i've always been interested in depicting scientists because I feel like scientists are artists. Tell me how scientists are like artists. Well, that was a mouthful. Uh, so let's break it down. Yeah. I, you know, scientists and artists are, have similar, you know, I always thought that they have similar minds because, you know, being a scientist, you know, there's, they, they both kind of share this passion and there's kind of this, this um, this idea that when you do science, you don't fully understand what is the the end goal. It's kind of like the pursuit, the process. Um, there is kind of this idea of trying to understand how life works. You know, when you're when you're a researcher, you're you're kind of in the lab trying to dismantle and understand like the the building blocks of life. You know, you're trying to understand something so so philosophical. Um, and I think that art is, is similar, right? You're, you're trying to do that through, you know, whether it's painting or, or writing. I mean, art is, for me, you know, we, we have those two words, but for me, they're, they're very similar. And I feel that 
my training as a scientist actually helped me become a filmmaker because um, it showed me how to be patient. It showed me where to, you know, where to examine and observe things. Um, it's also very humbling to be a scientist because you're faced with these monumental questions about how, you know, how your body works, how, how cells work, um, and you're observing other humans or other animals. So, you know, I feel like sometimes people tell me, oh, Alexi, how did you switch? You know, how did you go from being a biologist to, and to me, I, I never really switched. It's, it's kind of, to me, those two worlds really came together. And, um, and I now exist more as a, you know, I document and I make stories around science, but I still consider myself, you know, I often refer to myself as a retired, I retired as, at a young age um, from, from being in the lab, but, but, you know, my training as a biologist really informs, you know, my movies and, and everything that I do. And, um, and yeah, so that's, that's kind of how I see those two worlds. That's a beautiful answer, but I do want to stick with the part that you said, you know, how it became in this, in this switch, um, biologist, filmmaker, but maybe it happened before then. Cause I noticed I was watching your film, the fly room and then I watched it just, okay. Full disclosure. I've spent the last week, uh, just deep in the deep end of the pool of the world of Alexi Gambus. Okay. So I've watched everything you've ever made and, oh, and, and read everything <laughs> you might have said. So I've watched all these shorts and there seems to be a reoccurring theme of father and child, father and child, father and child. So what uh, role did your dad play in your love for film? Was, was there, is there something there? Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting because a lot of the things, what's amazing about film is that it's it's very unconscious, right? You make the films and then you watch them and you realize, oh, that's those are the patterns and that's what, you know, that's what I'm trying to kind of take out of myself. And, and it's almost like therapy, right? Because you make them um, as a way of kind of, as a mirror image of who you are. But my father is, you know, is, is an artist. He's a painter. Um, he raised our family with his artwork, but he, before becoming a painter, he was an engineer. Um, so already my father was kind of a reference in terms of, you know, I remember growing up, he would help me with my math work as, you know, as like a teenager, but you know, he made a living as a painter and it was, and it was remarkable because he actually supported the whole family. I, I went to college through his, you know, through his paintings and artwork. Wow. And I, and there was a bit of like a rebellion. I rebelled a bit against it because I didn't, I didn't fully understand who he was or what he was doing. So I never went, you know, as like a, as a bratty teenager, I never went to his openings. I was very much against it. I was like, I'm not going to go there. I'm not going to see you perform in front of like, a group <laughs> of people. but I realized that, you know, that, that theme comes up a lot in my film. It's, you know, and not only father, son, but also kind of parents, you know, in the fly room, it's about a little girl and her father. Mm -hmm. And I'm making a film actually, about my father now, which is much more kind of directly about him. Um, but I'm, I'm really interested in kind of how, you know, especially when you're working in a lab, how that reflects on your, on your identity, who you are, where you come from, your family, your origins, that that's something that is really interesting to me is like, you may be in a lab trying to understand something, but it, it reflects on, on your own identity. So yeah, my father, and it's, you know, it's, it's an, it's a, an in, a relationship that I'm still trying to fully kind of understand because he has kind of these multiple identities, right? He's my father. 
he's an artist. He's also kind of a bit of a performer at times. Um, and, um, and yeah, it's, it is, it is a big theme in my work for sure. It reminds me of a, a friend I have in town and I won't say his name, but he is a filmmaker and has had some pretty great success, but his father was uber successful and is sort of a legend. And he's always confronted with this paradox of, I know that I've been given opportunity because of my birthright, so to speak. But I also have this resentment because it would have been great to have a dad at home because his dad was so successful. He wasn't there a lot. He was always, so he, on one hand, you're benefiting from all the hard work, you know, the father did. And at the same time, you almost resent the art that took him away. Yeah, it's true. true. And I had a bit of that. Yeah. And the only way to express it is through art because you can't, when you say it out loud, you sound, you risk sounding petulant or, or spoiled, but when you put it in art and the metaphors that film, for example, can create, you can express it in a beautifully accurate way. And I think you do that a lot in, in your films. It's also a way for me to communicate with him. And now that we're speaking about that, it's, you know, when, when there is a bit of that barrier and I'm not able to reach him, well, the art makes it, you know, it's almost like a way for me to, to, to communicate with him. And it's interesting you say about father. I mean, I grew up with a father at home to some extent because he was a painter. So he worked at home. Um, and that was also, and then, you know, and then he would, he would leave for periods of time for, for his shows. Um, but yeah, I also never had the concept of like, uh, you know, parents that actually had jobs, you know, mm-hmm. they were, they were, <laughs> they were for themselves. And it was, you know, even today, the idea of working for like an institution or working for, you know, I know that that's very privileged of me to say that, but I, I, I don't have any reference to that. So it's, um, but I, I do think that it's, it is a way for me to communicate with my dad. And I know that my dad also is inspired by my work as a scientist and as a filmmaker, it, it comes out in his paintings. I I've seen it. He's painted butterflies and insects and, and rats. And so all of that is coming out. And, and I know that it's kind of, you know, it's like almost like a feedback loop. Yeah. You guys are communicating to each other through your art. Yeah, like telepathic communication because sometimes hard to communicate in, you know, in, in words. So I love that. I love that. Um, so you came up in it and you're making, uh, you've made this transition. It's not even really a transition. You're, you're sort of in that space now, but I'm curious along the way, what was the biggest challenge you had to overcome as a filmmaker and, and how did you overcome it? Well, I think, you know, the biggest challenge for, for anyone, I mean, especially in the arts is, you know, everybody wants to box you. Everybody wants to put you in a, in a specific, you know, oh, you know, this is what he does. Or, you know, so it was hard initially for me to say that I, I mean, even today to call myself a filmmaker, writer, director, it's, it's like an odd term. But I, I noticed that whenever you do something, there's always a tendency. And I, and I understand it because people want to understand who you are. So they want to they want to categorize you. They want to like label you. Oh, he makes movies about insects um, or he makes period films. And then I, you know, and then I made Son of Monarchs and it's like, oh, oh, actually he also makes films that are a little bit more maybe commercial. And so I'm always trying to break those, 
those boxes because I'm, I'm also very interested in kind of challenging stereotypes, right? And, and I remember when I finished my PhD in biology and I, I went to film school, I had a lot of, um, you know, resistance from the science community, like, why are you going to film? And then when I was in the film program, people were like, oh, he's a scientist, you know, he doesn't know what he's doing. And so I think that's been a big challenge. And, and of course, you know, how to balance, you know, doing my art and also kind of running other things that I do. But I feel like I, I'm, tr- I'm, I'm a little bit like uh, oversaturated because I do so many things, but I feel like in addition to making f- films, it's really interesting to curate films and kind of educate people around these topics because I feel like it becomes like a cohesive me that if I only spent my day just writing and making films and directing, um, I wouldn't be complete. And also because it takes me, it takes me like a decade to make a movie. So I have to fill in the gaps in between that. But, um, but I think that, you know, to make it long, to, to make it, yeah, it's a long answer, but I think the, the big thing is kind of breaking out of those stereotypes and those boxes. Yeah. Film is a fascinating business because it, in many ways, it's no different than any other business you would go into as an entrepreneur, but you don't have the upside of a product that is um, commodity. It can't be a commodity. You know, you can't just like quickly, um, you know, you can't make a $1 widget and sell it for $4. Like it's, it's a, it's a reversed model where the product costs more than what the consumer would pay for it. Um, and because of that, you don't get the at bats you need, right? So as a filmmaker, you still need to find, you know, product market fit, right? And to do that, you have to fail a bunch of times. So if I have a normal business, I get to say, oh, they didn't like the candy bar with the nougat in it. Okay. Let's put peanuts in it. Okay. Now they, they kind of like the one with peanuts a little bit more. Why why don't I put nougats and peanuts in it and then see if they like it? Oh, that's the one that one sold. Right. Um, Troubleshooting or, or adapting. Yeah. Yeah. And with film, you, you actually need the same amount of at bats, right? That's why you get a great talented sort of auteur filmmaker and they hit their third film and all of a sudden that you think they're an overnight success, but uh, what really happened was they made all these short films. They made two other feature films you never heard of. And, yeah. and then they, they figured out, oh, this is my voice. This is what the yeah. audience is responding to. Right. Um, and then like people that watch Aronofsky and watch, they go back and watch Pi. They didn't know about Pi before yeah. the other films. Right. But you can kind of see elements of like how that was going to work even when he, when he shot pie. So I think you're on that same trajectory. It's like, well, how do I get people to respect and understand real science and still make something entertaining and fun to watch? Um, So it looks like Son of Monarchs might be that thing. We're going to talk about that uh, in a, in a moment, but I want to go back to uh, the color of time. Cause this was an interesting film. Yeah. And I agree. I agree with that. I think, Oh, go ahead. Yes. No, I, I was just going to say that just to add to that, I think that, um, that, you know, film is like a muscle, you know, you need to, you need to keep doing it. It's like, it's like biking, you know, you need to keep, mm-hmm. you know, and I feel like short films and all of these things that I do, I, 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 I always kind of make short things because I, I need to always be kind of keep, keep it alive. Right. And, um, and it's interesting because a lot of people actually refer to this son of monarchs as being my first film. And I'm like, well, no, I mean, I, <laughs> films for like 10 years, but it's an interesting point how, how, you know, 
all of this work kind of comes up to the surface when, when you have a little bit of success. But success is also such a ephemeral thing, right? It kind of, it's like a wave that comes and goes. So yeah. I'm also very, very well aware of it. And, and at the end of the day, I, if I can ride that, that wave, if I can kind of surf that wave and, um, to help me make my next film, that that's, that's all I really need. Um, but yeah. And, and to come to color of time, you know, and I'm not only interested in science, I feel like science, there's like a limitless amount of topics that I want to tackle. But I, I oftentimes think that science is kind of like the, the music in my film. It's mm-hmm. kind of like in the background. Um, and I treat it as music. I don't, I don't make it about the science, but I mean, the fly room is about uh, like an important science, but it ultimately it's about a father and a daughter. Right. Yep. Yep. And so color of time. Yeah. Color of time was, I was in film school. Um, I was in my third year, you know, I was with James Franco and, and that, and that crowd. And he selected 10 filmmakers to adapt a, a kind of a collection of poems by this American poet, CK Williams into a feature. Um, and we, we would each adapt uh, kind of a, a poem into a short film and that was kind of my first experience working, yeah, working on a feature film and working with other filmmakers. And it was a, a great concept, right? Like 10 filmmakers have to come together. We have to figure out how it all fits together. Um, and it was also a great opportunity to work with, you know, with James Franco and Mila, Mila Kunis um, and, um, and a few other actors that were um, Henry Hopper, who's mm-hmm. Dennis Hopper's son. Um, but I also Campbell. got... Yeah, I also got to work with Jessica Chastain. I mean, it, you know, it was a remarkable experience because I shot my film, but I was also helping others shoot their films. Um, like, you know, so it was Zach Graff, all these, all these, all these amazing actors. Yeah, Zach Graff was in it. That's true. Yeah, yeah. Zach you had a, you had an incredible cast in in that movie, and I when I approached it, I thought, oh, this is um this is going to be like four rooms, right? Where right. you had four different directors, you know shooting a room and you know people think that's a quentin tarantino movie but he just did the last room and um and then you find out wait a second there's like 10 to 12 directors on this and 10 to 12 writers on this so how did it work how did you manage i've seen some film sets go sideways with lesser egos so how did you manage all this well we had we we were in at nyu for a big part of it like kind of um, we had workshops where we would talk a little bit about, you know, how they would all fit together. Um, you know, there was kind of an order in the actual poems, like how the stories fit together because they, they were different. They were these autobiographical pieces. They were basically short poems about different stages of the poet's life, you know, from being a kid, a teenager, um, a young adult, um, you know, like an older adult, which was played by James Franco. And then the real poet CK Williams, who, who, uh, sadly passed away a few years ago, um, also appears in the film. And, um, and so we, you know, it was, it was an interesting, it was kind of like also my, my foray, like the, me understanding like this idea of, you know, working in a bigger group on a film where you only have like one piece of the puzzle. And I love, I love that. Um, and I thought it was really interesting. And so we all shot like test films. We made the films with like other actors. And then we all flew to Detroit because James was, a uh, shooting Wizard of Oz mm-hmm. so, and he was, he was the wizard. And so on his off time, he would shoot, he was shooting this film with us and, uh, and it was great. It was a great experience. Um, and you know, it took some time to figure out kind of the editing of it, but, um, 
but yeah, in my, my short story is called, um, one of the muses. And it's about, a, it's basically about James Franco, who's the poet in his forties that has a big poetry reading and he's preparing for it at, at night with a, with a tape recorder. And he listens to his voice and he starts imagining his mother and mm. his own kind of younger years and all of the insecurities start appearing as shadows in the room. Actually, it starts the film. The, the, the feature film starts with, with you know, with, um, with James on the tape recorder. And then at the end of the night, he goes into the room and, you know, and there's Mila Kunis who plays his wife. And she's like, what happened? He's like, I had a, I had a crazy night of memories. Um, and so that was my piece. Um, and, um, and yeah, it, it was kind of broken up into pieces and, and, and distributed into the feature, but, um, but yeah, it was a really amazing experience to work with also my classmates, um, who were, were great. Yeah. For young filmmakers listening, what is the benefit or upside of doing a test shoot with standing actors? You know, it's a good point because I, I teach film. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a teacher at NYU and I, and I, we speak a lot about these things. I feel like now with, with the digital age, you know, I feel like it's important to shoot content before making a feature. And I also do it uh, with my feature films. I shoot like a short version of it, you know, because it helps people understand what you're trying to do. And it also helps you experiment You know, like, okay, let me try this idea. It's a little bit far-fetched. It's about like two clowns that are going to be butterflies, like traveling through. <laughs> let me try it. It's, it's, it's a short film. There's no, you know, there's no like pressure. Um, and let me see how it goes. And then I can pull it back. I can show other people. And then there's also the, you know, I can use it to raise money. I can use it to, to get people to come on board. I can try to get actors. So I think, I think it's really important to, um, to shoot. Um, in addition to, you know, a portfolio, like a mood board, a visual deck, um, I think having a short film or having a test shoot really helps you uh, think about certain ideas because there's no pressure when you shoot a feature film. It's like, a it's like a beast. It's like a, you know, there's like 50 people on set, there's pressure, there's people screaming at you, you know? And so, so it really helps me kind of get a sense of what I'm trying to make. Yeah. I've always admired golfers for that reason. <laughs> Have the whole, not just the TV audience, but you've got a thousand people waiting for you to whack the ball. Oh, yeah, and, I couldn't and you can't miss. And it's like, how do you, how do you not even think about missing this little ball that you have to swing at? So, um, I used to play tennis and I, I had to stop playing professional, like, uh, when I was a teenager because of this anxiety, I couldn't do it. I couldn't work on like anxiety <laughs> of like that last, like that match point, you know, <laughs> reminds me of my first piano recital. I think I had to play bad by Michael Jackson or something like that. Oh, wow. and, and uh, I, at home, I had it down. And then when I got there and people were watching and my parents were there, I just shat the bed. It was it was and it, and it was on tape. So, you know, somewhere there's a film of me just really not even getting it's, you can't even tell what it's supposed to be. It's it's that bad. So this is this is this is very true about the anxiety. And and look, you've you've kept this practice up. I, I watched a couple of shorts where you uh, were doing disposable robot. Oh, yeah. Where it's like you're just doing test screenings of like you in this cardboard box robot head. Yeah. And the beauty of it, the fun of it is that that's a silly little test thing where you're like pretending to talk and you're doing some different things with this robot head on. And then you watch the short film that came after it. And it's like this beautiful metaphor for getting broke up with is at least how I took it. Yeah. And um, 
and it worked. I was like, oh, that connects. Now he tested it. It worked out and then he shot the thing. So yeah, yeah. kudos. And, and I appreciate the insight. I think that's, that's very helpful. Another thing that's helpful a lot of times for independent filmmakers is going about sort of finding funding and, and how to fund things. Should you pitch first and get someone to pay or do you get angel investors and then make it and try to get the money on the back end, make the film that is and make it on the back end. So with the fly room, you had the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and Spike Lee's production fund. How did you how did you get involved in that? How did you get access to the Hollywood Foreign Press Association and the Spike Lee Production Fund? Yeah, so the Hollywood Foreign Press Association was um, was a grant that I received um, from them, which I think was uh, was part of the NYU because I went to NYU Film School for for my for my masters, um, and it was a small program actually. Right now, it's been in the news because all of our film, all of our friends just got the Oscar, like Chloe Zhao for oh. Nomadland. These are all people that I was in film school with. So it, it was a big, big, uh, it's been a big year for NYU because the producer, Molly Asher, she won Best Picture. Chloe won, you know, Best Director. Um, and then also Shaka King, who did Ju- Judas and the Black Messiah, is also. Yeah, he's also an NYU guy with, and he was, you know, he was kind of the same time as me. So, um, so I think I got it from there and, 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 um, and I, cause they, there was a few kind of opportunities as your thesis film and I received that support. So that was amazing. And then Spike Lee has, has been kind of my mentor. And I, like, I simply adore Spike because he's always, he's always been kind of this unconventional, you know, he's just like, do it. You know, and he, for some reason, he was also really interested in the science. And uh, I remember at the time he was working on a film about a kind of like an African-American physicist who wanted to create a time travel machine. He's always been super interested in science. And and I remember we we had weekly meetings with Spike and he would say like, you know, just show me what you got and then we'll speak. Uh, He was also like fully night with mix. He was like orange from head to toe. (laughs) <laughs> uh, he would always be like going to like a Knicks game, like an hour later. Um, and, yeah. and he really helped me for not only for fly room. I remember that he, I gave him, um, a drawing of a fruit fly and he put it next, next to like a Patrick Ewing, uh, like photo that he had. And I was like, Oh my God, I, Spike Lee has like a fruit fly in his office. Yeah. Um, yeah. He, he, he gives out this like fund, this production fund to also third year students. And I got it. And, um, and yeah, and he was also helping me, you know, just get more exposure for the film and also helped me with Son of Monarchs. You know, I helped, like, he was involved, you know, I went to see him, you know, at the time when I was writing it and he was telling me how I had to make it a little bit more political and, um, you know, he calls, he never referred to Trump by his, his name. He called him the orange, um, the orange one, <laughs> the orange one. Yeah. So he would never refer to him, but yeah, he, he was always super helpful. And actually I haven't, because of the pandemic, I haven't been able to see him to, um, to show him the, the final movie, but, um, but yeah, that's how I received the funds or that's how I received the grant. But I think, you know, to answer the question about funding, it's, it's really tough. And I think as independent filmmakers, we, you have to be really good at finding ways to raise money, you know, because you can't wait for grants. I mean, you have to, ultimately you have to make your film at some point. Mm-hmm. And so I've been, which I can talk a little bit about, I mean, I've been really 
always thinking about, okay, how, how can I make this? Like, where can I find money that's maybe not your typical places? Um, and how do I keep control, creative control over the movies that I make, which was really important for me. So, um, so yeah, I'm happy to speak a little bit about kind of that, that world that, that I navigate, but you have to be a, an entrepreneur in, in this, in the world of making independent films. Cause it's, it's super tough to raise money for films. So. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. You, you touched on something that some in the audience may not have a background on if, if they haven't followed your work. You mentioned that Spike Lee put a fruit fly on his wall next to Patrick Ewing. And you're quoted as saying, we owe fruit, fruit flies a lot. Um, tell the audience briefly why yeah. we owe fruit flies so much. Yeah, so I, I spent most of my 20s looking at fruit flies under the microscope. That was kind of like my, you know, between, you know, going to parties in, in Brooklyn and, you know, li living in New York. During the day, I, I was looking at fruit flies under the microscope because most of my research was using flies as a, as a system, as an animal to study uh, cancer and study, you know, different types of um, human disease, human, under, human development. Um, and it's an animal that we owe a lot to because... Um, most of what we understand about our genes, about our genetics comes from fruit flies. You know, everything, the, the basics of what we understand about our cells and our body, we owe it to research that was done on fruit flies at the beginning of the, of the 20th century. And it was done in a room, um, in, at Columbia university that was known as the fly room. And these, the guys that worked in that room were known as the fly boys. And they were these like very kind of hidden. One of the guys was kind of like a James Dean type type guy, like you know, believed in free love. <laughs> an artist in New York City in the twenties. I believe in paid love. Yeah, not even yeah. So, um, he was a crazy guy. I mean, he died of syphilis from all of his <laughs> crazy stories. But um, but I wanted I wanted to make a movie about about the fly room because it's like such a weird story, you know, like these guys that were working in a lab that kind of basically are responsible for modern genetics. And right now in the middle of a pandemic and think, thinking about all these things, I mean, you know, if it weren't for these guys, we wouldn't be, you know, we wouldn't be creating these vaccines like Pfizer vaccine based on yeah. RNA. RNA. And all this. Yeah. So, so I think that um, that's why the fruit fly, which was, it was the fly room was my thesis film at NYU and I was working on it during my last year at NYU and I was working on it with Spike Lee. So I would show him like, you know, I was shooting short films and I was interviewing the daughter of one of the scientists who, who was portrayed in the movie. And, um, yeah. Yeah. and he was, you know, he was just like so into it and, uh, and really kind of told me, he's like, just shoot it. He's like, just shoot it. Um, and so, and so I went on and, and, and filmed, filmed it with, with whatever means that I had at the time. So. Yeah, it was a, it was a fascinating uh, look into the into that world, and I I follow and understand CRISPR, and I don't think even before I saw your film, I understood the role that fruit flies had played to get us to that point. And uh, so, so thank you for that background, and we'll talk about that a little bit uh, here in a second. But you your your films do sit sort of at this confluence of art and science, and but, but you really view yourself as a filmmaker primarily now. That's, that's what you've put out front. Is there anything else you want to achieve in biology? Oh, it's a good question. I mean, I, I am frustrated. I, there part of me 
wishes that I could go back to research, but, uh, but what's great about making films is that I get a, like, I get a taste of, like, I understand the language, right? So I can, I can live vicariously through the characters, like the, in Son of Monarchs, the, the guy, Tenoch Huerta, who, mm-hmm. who is, you know, the actor in Narcos as well, and, and is going to be in, Bla- in, uh, in Wakanda forever, um, <laughs> Uh, the sequel to Black Panther, but you know, I, he, I, all the characters that I create kind of, I, I live through them. And when they're doing the research, I, I understand how important it is to, to see them work, to film the process, to film these moments. So I think that every film that I make gets, allows me to kind of enter into another field of science. Right. Um, right now I'm working on a, this film that I mentioned called the, it's called the next Jaguar. Mm-hmm. It's the field of de-extinction. I don't know if you've heard of de-extinction, but it's like uh, bringing back animals. It's like Jurassic Park. It's um, basically yes. trying to bring back animals with CRISPR. Speaking about CRISPR, um, I think with Kevin Kelly wants to do this really badly. Yeah, Kevin Kelly and, and uh, George Church at Harvard, and you know they want to, they want to bring back the woolly mammoth and all the, all of these animals. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, it's a fascinating field because they, you know, it's it, ultimately it's about like tinkering with like using scissors to, to make these changes to the DNA, to recreate these animals that went extinct. And so every film that I make allows me to kind of enter into that world. But I, I, as you said, like I, I've kind of now, especially in the last like year, yeah, I've kind of assumed, you know, okay, I make films and this is where, you know, I had a moment where I was like, should I go back to science? But, but now it's like, I'm pretty in the deep end now and, um, and have, you know, many films that I want to make. So so being a biologist, you know, I, 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 I am one through the characters that I create. Yeah. I love that. You mentioned sons, uh, our son of Monarch and our sons of Monarch. And that's the film we want to talk about now, because that's the one that's going through the festival run. And it's not just going through a festival run. It's having immense success. And so before we get into what it did at Sundance and what it did at Seattle and, and what its trajectory is going to be, Tell the audience what the inspiration was behind Son of Monarch. Well, it's the first, it's my second feature and it's, uh, it's a very, it's kind of a semi-biographical film. It's kind of my, my life, um, a little bit. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. It's the, it's the story of a scientist that lives in New York and a Latino scientist, a Mexican scientist who, uh, works in a lab, um, trying to understand, um, basically trying to understand the genetics of color and patterns and butterflies. Um, but then he receives, um, the news that his grandmother died, uh, in Mexico and he returns back home. And it's the story of, of this man who doesn't really know where he belongs, you know, mm-hmm. whether he belongs in this country where he's, you know, living now in the U S kind of an immigrant there. Um, but how he relates to where he comes from, um, feeling a bit estranged from that world. Mm-hmm. And then the, the one thing that connects these two worlds is the butterfly because he works on it in the lab and where he's from is also kind of the butterfly haven. It's where all the butter, all the monarch butterflies arrive every year from their long migration. So the butterfly becomes, the monarch butterfly becomes a symbol for having multiple homes, um, not being from one place. And I think that it's a really important to make films then embrace the fact that we, you know, and, and it's, it is my story. It is your story. I mean, we were just speaking a little bit before we come from multiple worlds and we feel, you know, 
we feel like those worlds are home, but at the same time, we feel like a stranger every time we, we enter those worlds. Cause everybody always says, Oh, you know, in my case, it's like, Oh, you're not French, you're American. And when I'm in the U S I'm, I'm French. And when I'm in, you know, in, in Venezuela, I'm, you know, I'm, so, so that's the story. And, and it, it did happen to me. I was, I was studying in the U S in a lab. Um, and it was kind of like a very meditative place. My grandmother died and, and I was trying to figure out where I belonged and it, and it, and and I had a dream that I would, I was like turning into insects. Um, so I thought it was a really neat idea that he kind of, he starts becoming a butterfly, you know, mm-hmm. um, and the film, what's beautiful is that film allows you to kind of, um, fulfill your dreams, you know? So things that I had imagined, I can make them become true in the film. So he literally, uh, without giving too much away, he starts becoming a butterfly in the movie. Um, and, um, and it, you know, I didn't, I speak about CRISPR and all these things. So, so the film has been, yeah, it's been amazing. I mean, it was a tough road because we were kind of, we shot luckily before the pandemic and then we were stuck in the edit and post-production during the pandemic. But, you know, what's been really heartwarming is how it's, how it's resonated with a lot of, um, um, especially kind of immigrants, uh, but Latinos that live in the U S they, you know, I, some of the things that really resonated with me and, and kind of touched me was, you know, Latino saying like, finally a movie about our, like that represents my story and not the typical stories that we see sometimes of, you know, especially of Mexicans in film, like crossing the border and, you know, and kind of yeah, some of those. Have, you have this metaphor you, you present in the film where the, the vein of a butterfly wing becomes a, a border between countries. Can, can you speak to that a little bit and, and, and tie it to what you were just saying about Hispanic folks and people from Mexico watching the film and, and loving it? Well, you know, what's interesting is that on, on a butterfly wing, there's like, there are different colors and patterns, right? And there are borders, right? There are things that divide colors, right? And when, when you study in this field, field of like understanding color and patterns, um, a lot of it is trying to understand, okay, why is this part orange? Why is this part white? You know, you're trying like yeah. a, you're trying like a, like a magician, you know, it's like you looking at a Picasso painting and trying to understand like, why is this painting the way it is? Um, and color is interesting because color also reflects race, right? We're, mm-hmm. we're thinking about race. Like why do we have certain colors? I mean, it's, it's a really beautiful analogy about thinking about these broader topics about, about race. And I, I, something that was really interesting to me is that the way we think about borders on a wing, you know, kind of on the macro level is very similar how we think about borders between, you know, between countries. And I wanted to make that analogy between the infinitely small and the infinitely big. Um, and the fact that, you know, butterflies, they can cross borders, you know, you can put a wall, you can put a fence, you can, you know, they fly over it. Um, and, and they don't have any borders. And so, um, but I, I love making those analogies between, you know, especially when somebody's looking through a microscope and the, the really small connects to the really big. Um, and, and so that was something that, that I had mentioned that the vein of a butterfly wing reminds me of like a satellite image of like, you know, the border between U S and Mexico, you know, and it actually looks the same. If you look at it, from a satellite image, it kind of looks like a butterfly wing if you put it side by side. I'm going to go to Google Earth when this conversation's <laughs> over and, and check I have that like out. presentations where I show it. I'll, I'll send it to you afterwards where 
I make the analogy between like looking from above and, uh, and looking on a butterfly wing. So please do that. That fascinates me. I love stuff like that. And, uh, I, I want to tell you that I really relate to what you said about where do you belong and yeah. trying to find uh, the place w- where you belong and, and for the audience to bring them up to speed. Uh, we know that you're, you're French and Venezuelan, but spend most time in New York. You're in Paris right now as we're having this conversation. And yeah. I think some of this audience knows this, knows this about me cause, uh, I've mentioned it, but, uh, I'm black and German, but on the German side, I'm a, I'm French as well. So I've got that, that quarter of French in me. And, uh, there is something deep inside me that tells me that I could go anywhere and, and be just fine. And, and, and it makes sense. Uh, but then I don't. And then it's, so then that just sits there, you know what I mean? Yeah. So, uh, I'm, I'm excited for the possibilities of the film. It's beautiful because it sits in, you know, in your, in your core, right. In your genetics, like it, it's part of who you are, you know, yes. and, and in some cases it kind of wakes up, you know, and it's like, Oh, this is who I am. This is, this is where I, and I think it's really, you know, it's, and of course, diversity is just, yeah, I think it's just a beautiful, um, yeah. And I, and I feel like it's also important to make films. Sometimes films tend to focus on a very specific, you know, like for example, they focus on a very specific area, but I feel like it's very important to make films that cross borders that are in multiple languages also. Like, you know, in my film in Santa Monarch, he speaks Spanish in one scene and then he speaks English. And, and you see oftentimes in films, they try to force like, a language. It's like, okay, we're gonna, it's going to be all in English. And so for me, it was something really important to be able to kind of navigate really f- freely between language and play, like one in one scene, he's in New York and then the other scene he's in Mexico. And I, and I thought that was, yeah. you know, and it's because that's, that's who we are. We travel. And, you know, if I take a plane, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm actually coming, I'm going to LA in two weeks. It's, you know, it is what it is. Like we, we have that kind of ability to kind of jump back and forth. So some of us. Yep. That's exactly right. Um, promised I'd call this back because yeah. <laughs> you, you do have opinions on this and, and your films touch on this a little bit. And we're sort of at that moment right now, uh, with CRISPR, um, the Walter Isaacson book just came out. Code breakers talking about Jennifer Dudna and, and her great work in the field. Uh, what are the possibilities or, or what possibilities are you most excited about or afraid of related to CRISPR? Well, the story about CRISPR was um, that I actually got to interview, um, not Jennifer, but I, I got to interview Emmanuel Charpentier, who is the French scientist, the other one that got the Nobel Prize that is at Max Planck in, in Germany, in Berlin. And, and I met her. She actually, they invited me to show the fly room and I got to spend an afternoon with her. And I remember this was right before the Nobel Prize. It was like two years before. Uh, we all knew that it was it was bound to happen that they would receive it. Um, but you know, this beautiful, you know, beautiful like mid forties uh, scientist, just like uh, really free spirited, and um, and I had an amazing conversation. And we, when we were speaking, she mentioned, you know, what really frustrates me the most is that everybody's always contacting me with like these dystopian stories about CRISPR and, <laughs> and they want me to consult and Spielberg and these people. And she's like, you know, but I, I want people to understand that CRISPR is also uh, something that is kind of 
you know, I would, I wish that there were more films and kind of depictions of CRISPR and more in kind of everyday stories. And, and that struck me. And I was like, okay, I need to, I need to incorporate CRISPR um, into Son of Monarchs um, and kind of incorporate it in a way that it's like, it also speaks to his identity, but it's not, you know, I don't really go fully into, into science fiction. Um, and so it was important for me because CRISPR, you know, really deals with this issue of, you know, who we are, our identities, and whether or not we should change our makeup, you know, whether or not we should be tinkering with our makeup and why we should be doing it. And should we be doing it to fight disease or fight, um, you know, or kind of enhancing certain traits. And so it's a slippery slope for sure. And so my, my views on it, that's why I have a debate in the film because I didn't want to, I wanted it to be kind of open-ended. There, there's a scene in the in Son of Monarchs where the scientist and a journalist, and by the way, in, in the actual film, it's a real journalist. It's like a, like a documentary scene. Oh, They're cool. debating, you know, yeah. it's the guy, the journalist is a uh, Kurt Anderson from Studio 360. Mm-hmm. Um, and Kurt, I asked Kurt because I know him because he, we, we had crossed paths for, for WNYC and, and studio. And I asked, can you, can you just do an interview on CRISPR um, and interview this um, William Maypother who, who was the actor that plays the, the, the kind of the head of the lab. So my take on CRISPR long-winded, but I think, you know, the problems, the problem that we have is, is this idea of who should be, you know, who should be allowed to kind of use this technology. You know, there are many hackers and biohackers. Um, There's a whole movement right now, kind of a DIY CRISPR movement, people wanting to kind of sell their own CRISPR kits um, and I think that it's hard for me to understand fully what I feel about it. I think that, um, I think that my take is that it's very dangerous because we don't fully understand what the repercussions are by kind of modifying specific genes on, on the overall body. But I do understand that, you know, there are kind of specific diseases and specific issues where we can come in and kind of intervene almost like surgeons, um, but instead of dissecting organs, we're, we're modifying very specific um, DNA, DNA letters and DNA nucleotides. Um, it's a hard one. It's a hard one because I don't really know. My biggest issue is what will happen to the people that have been CRISPRed? You know, what will their, you know that, that's something that I've, I've been thinking a lot about is, you know, if you have been CRISPRed, you know, by other people, and you were born with that, like, what are your own rights and how do you kind of navigate the world? Um, so a lot of the issues that I come up with is always about identity. Like, how would I feel as like a crispr you know, there were these scientists in China that, um, that created crispr um, uh, babies that had, that were HIV resistant, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah. And I just kept, keep thinking about these, you know, they must be like six, seven years old now, but you know, what will happen to them when they grow up and, and how would the world kind of, accept them or discriminate them or, you know, these types of questions, but I I don't fully have an answer to it. I I think it's a lot of it is about regulation and about who controls it. My my biggest fear is that we see it now with the pandemic, you know, big corporations, biotechs, pharmaceutical companies like Pfizer and these are the companies that are involved with CRISPR. And so corporations are going to be the ones that are going to be making these decisions and it's, it's going to be kind of out of the hands of government. So it's scary it's scary. Um, and I'm not fully, I don't fully know what's going to happen. What, what I do know is 
the future, and I don't want to be kind of grim thinking about the future, but we will we will be living in a Gattaca like Ethan Hawke. <laughs> we will be discriminated based on our genes. Based, we're we're already seeing it with the vaccine, right? People are saying that they're going to they're going to have like a vaccine report in our passports, you know, and so yeah. they'll know who's been vaccinated. Who's so that's my biggest fear is that people will like de- determine whether you get a job or health insurance based on your on your genetic makeup, and so. CRISPR right. may be a way of fixing that, right? Saying like, oh, if I have this mutation that creates heart disease or, or makes me more susceptible, um, then then maybe I should CRISPR it, these types of things. So it's it's a scary world out there. Yeah, it's it can be this really exciting thing or this really terrifying thing, depending on who has the right and the and the access to to the technology. I just had this debate like three weeks ago with someone. I could see the fear in their eyes talking about CRISPR. I said, yeah, but you wouldn't be afraid of it if you were able to turn off the Parkinson's gene. Right. Right. You know, the gene that expressed something or if you were a new mother and you knew that your kid had uh, a very high probability of Alzheimer's and they were able to yeah. de-express that gene. Yeah. So we think about it like we're going to have a super race of people with sort of hypertrophic muscles and uh, blue yeah. and green eyes and dark skin. And there's just, and that's possible, like this super, this other race of people. And, and like, but then there's also this very human part of it that it could could benefit society in immeasurable ways so uh and the question around is the corner we go i guess yeah who is going to have access to that as well right like you right. know who will be able to afford you know um fixing a specific mutation for parkinson or you know those are the the questions of access is you know and we're, we're seeing it right now right well, with ha- you know what's happening in india Mm-hmm. You know, they're suffering so much. And then in the States, like, you know, they're, they're vaccinating kids. So it's it, the inequality is going to be, is going to be a tough one. Um, but I do think it doesn't mean that the technology shouldn't be put forward. And I think that it's, you know, I celebrate the ingenuity of CRISPR. Like I feel like what, what they achieved, Jennifer Dunan and Emmanuel Champontier, this idea of taking something from bacteria and hijacking it for, for this. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. And I, and I really, celebrate the fact that they were able to create the system. And, um, there's a lot of good things that have come out of it. So, right. And those that have that original knowledge, those are our new gods. Uh, <laughs> so yeah, looking forward whole, to the, uh, series the of films you make on this. <laughs> the extinction is a fascinating one because CRISPR is at the foreground of that. It's like, you know, well, if we are responsible for animals going extinct, we can use CRISPR technology to bring them back. And that's, uh, that's like Jurassic Park all over again, but it's, it's a really fascinating topic because people believe that bringing back animals will also be a way to fight climate change because some animals are important for, for the ecosystem. So yeah, it's, it's a fascinating. Right. But then also what if, uh, evolution caused extinction and you bring those animals back, those animals are extinct for a reason, right? Like the dodo bird. Well, exactly. I think that's a bad example. I think we actually killed the dodo bird, but there, but there are animals that, animals, um, that, that just didn't make it. Exactly. I mean, some of them, some of them, as you said, there's like, there's cycles of extinction that happen naturally. So we, we don't really, we don't want to like mess with it too much, but, um, I always wonder why they didn't say, let's bring back the Neanderthal. 
yeah. or some other version of person that that was made extinct by homo sapien yeah the tasmanian tiger is a good one also it's like <laughs> but um but that is something that i'm like i'm fully i'm fully immersed in that right now i'm writing about it i'm reading about it i'm like you know it's it's interesting to see debates about it like people pro and cons and it's totally amazing and um and, <laughs> I can't help but laugh because I realized that if we'd been having this conversation 30 years ago, it'd be pure science fiction. And this is happening somewhere right now as we're having this conversation. So it's, it's it's funny in this whole different kind of surreal way. Most people don't know it's happening, right? They don't know. And like you tell people, it's like a weird word. Like it's also such a bizarre word, right? Like de-extinction. It's like a, yeah. De-extinction. It's like a, you had to invent the word. Um, Many independent filmmakers dream is to be accepted into Sundance, just to be a selection. You went there and you won an award. You you won uh, the Alfred, I think it's Alfred P. Sloan Award. And how has your film life changed since a Sundance win? What kind of attention has this gotten you? How, How has your film life moved since then? Yeah, it's completely it's it's changed everything. I mean, I I I have to like bow down to the power of Sundance and <laughs> and also thank them because you know it was an amazing experience. I mean, they they really brought me in and it, and it felt like being part of a family and um, they really loved the film. Um, you know, from the programmers, you know, it was frustrating because we weren't there. But of course, it's, it's everybody's dream, you know, to be at Sundance. I've I sent multiple shorts and, and fly room and all kinds of films there. And, you know, rejection is part of our worlds. I get rejections every day. Um, I think that what's changed is that I now got a little bit more exposure. Um, you know, people that resonated for, for, with the film are also, some of them are important figures like Eva Longoria and other people that, that responded to the film. Um, the big news is that I signed with this, um, management company called macro m88 mm-hmm. oh yeah um, i know i know them yep yeah they're amazing and, and so macro is like my new family they check in on me they're pushing me to finish the script and so i'm working i'm working with them and i've been having meetings with production companies so it's it's a different you know people are waiting it's a little bit of pressure also because people are waiting to see what i make next and want to support it and so i'm in the phase right now where once I finish the script, I, I have companies that are willing to read it and and potentially help me make it. And so it's it's amazing. And I, for me, that's the most important is that I have a voice. And I feel like what's changed is that people now, because I have all of these identities, right? I'm a biologist. I run a festival. People are like, oh, you know, I mean, it's he's kind of legit, you know, type of thing. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's not like these obscure films about clowns. <laughs> running around as butterflies and so and so and i think also it was, it was it allowed people to realize because my first film was which i i mean i have i'm very kind of fly room for me is a very personal film as well but this one has a little bit more of a commercial aspect to it and i can't say because i'm, I'm about secrecy but um it's going to be on a very important streaming platform in the u.s and it's going to be released in the fall and so that's amazing because it's going to get a huge amount of exposure. Um, oh, so congratulations, man. That's awesome. Yeah, it's super exciting. And so that's happening in the background. And so that also for me is important because the film will be seen 
not only by people in the festival world, but now by, by every, everyone. So it's amazing. It's super exciting. I, I, that's that's going to kill, and I can't wait in, until that happens. Uh, I'll let you know. I'll like share share the news with everyone. Yeah. That's that's right. Let's proliferate this action and make it the biggest hit it can possibly be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mentioned TED Talks early in our conversation, and we talked about that a little bit, and just how terrifying it is to be uh, on a TED Talk. You did a TED Talk uh, in 2019. And the first thing I thought was, wow, what a wonderful way to promote your filmmaking. Yeah. It's like you're, you're there talking about science and film, but through it, you were able to promote your film, Son of Monarch. So what's the process? Is this something independent filmmakers can do? Can they find some local TED chapter and do a TEDx and promote their film? How, uh, is this a different angle to, to maybe promote films that we haven't thought about? Yeah, well, I think that it's a good point. I think that when you're a filmmaker, more than anything, you have you have something that you want to share, right, with the yeah. world. Um, you have a message, and I think Ted is very good at with that in in finding people that have very kind of passionate ideas about how you know it may sound you know it may sound cliche, but how to change the world. Like there, there's literally people that are really kind of thinking about you know from conservation to protein structure to you know, to some extent, me making films is like minimal impact compared to some of the other um, people that, that were giving talks with me at the time. But I was invited to be part of the TED Fellows program, which is basically they select around 20 to 30 um, kind of, you know, emerging kind of voices that that um, that are doing interesting things. And I was part of this program. And as part of it, you know, you kind of brainstorm with them, but you also give a TED talk. Um, and it taught me a lot because it, it taught me how to structure a message, um, how to also think about it's not it is about my films, but it's about something bigger. Right. It's about science communication. It's about um, a term that I've actually coined and, and I've been pushing for the last few years is this idea of the science new wave. Um, and the science new wave is based on the French new wave. Mm. Um, the idea is that in order to make films around science, we need to make sure that science intersects with culture, with diversity, with other disciplines. Um, and we need to break the, you know, the science film, you immediately think of like Nat Geo, or you may think of science fiction movies, but there's so much of a great, like rich area of how to bring science into other disciplines. And so the science new wave is kind of like my, my manifesto saying to the world, let's figure out ways to make movies about science, but, that are fiction, that are, you know, that are hybrids and all that. So that was a, a platform and kind of like a, um, a speaker, you know, to be able to do that to an audience that responded to it. And it's, it was a wonderful experience because I, I had mentors that, that helped me. And, and what I would recommend any filmmaker out there or anybody that has an interesting idea is to apply to these things, you know, because if you're very, very, if you have a very strong message or, or way of thinking about things, um, you know, and it, and it just so happens that film is the way I do that. I think like visually and through stories, but I think it's really important to, um, to, to do other things, you know, similar to Ted, to speak about your work, whether it's, you know, the main Ted or it's a TEDx or, um, it's being part of conferences. Um, don't, it comes back to what we speak, spoke about before. Don't box yourself in thinking mm-hmm. like, oh, I make films. I should only be in that world of making films. It's like, no, you're, 
you're a storyteller, you have messages, you have something that you want to share with the world. And so that's, that was for me really important. And, and Ted really gave me the confidence to speak, you know, about my work and, and kind of get a response and, and a huge platform to, to speak about it. And so, and, and again, it's all about, you become part of these families, you know, you become part of the Ted family, part of the Sundance family. And these are people that genuinely, I mean, I know there's a business behind it, but genuinely these people care. They want to know what you're up to. And it's, I can't emphasize how important it is as an artist or a scientist to, to have communities, to have people yeah. around you that you can rely on and speak to. And, you know, because you don't make these things alone. Um, and it's all about community. And so, and I think that's what people are missing right now, right? With the pandemic is like being back and being with people, exchanging ideas and all that. And that's why I enjoy doing this because it's like an opportunity, a humbling opportunity to be able to, to share, right? To share what you do and also kind of self-reflect on why you do it. Um, I think it's really important. Thank you so much. I'm, I'm humbled as well. And I think that's wonderful advice. Um, we mentioned earlier in the conversation, you've created the Netflix of science in Labocene. And so with that in mind, what do you think is the holy grail of science films, if you had to pick one right now? Because I was really interested in kind of the science integrating with other disciplines and there's so much content being made and, and I run this festival. I said, oh, you know, there are big platforms out there, but we, I, I, I thought it would be nice to create a platform that brings all these films in there and, and, and showcases them through issues and spotlights. And so, so I created a platform and it also allows me to distribute my own work and understand distribution. I'm really interested in kind of film distribution mm -hmm. changing and the, the, the rising Ditto. platforms, you know, like H, HBO Max and, and Hulu and all these things. It's, they're all, they're all there and it's, it's, they're kind of shaking up Netflix a little bit because there's new newcomers. Um, the films, yeah, the, it's hard to, to pick like, what is my, my favorite kind of science film? Um, I will say that there's this film, um, this French film that I always come back to. It's called My American Uncle. Okay. And it's a film that was made in the 60s as part of it. Was, there was a whole like science sub-movement in the French New Wave. Um, and there's this filmmaker, his name is Alain René, um, who made these like science fiction stories. And, and My American Uncle is kind of this film about um, crazy scenes about people turning into rats and about psychology and... It's, it's a wonderful film. I can't even describe it. It's so crazy, but it's about behavioral science and about how we cope with fear. Um, and I think it's an amazing film. Um, and of course, you know, I'm, I'm a big fan of films like Gattaca. I think Gattaca is a, is a, is a film that sticks with you. Um, and I come back to it often because I, you know, I definitely respond, um, respond to it. And recently at Sundance, there's this film that I really loved called All Light Everywhere. And it's about perception of light and about surveillance systems and about how the world kind of observes us. And it's this filmmaker from Baltimore, his name is Theo Anthony. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of an experimental documentary. It, it blew it like it blowed my mind. It's, it's an unbelievable film and it was recently acquired by neon and, uh, and you, you need to watch it cause it's, it's a beautiful. I will, I will definitely dream. check it out. It's the opposite of a film we were involved in called all light will end. Ah, okay. It's a horror, a horror. I can't film. wait to see your films. By the way, I'm gonna, I'm gonna check them out. <laughs> yeah, we have one called Another Version of You that you can see everywhere, and then uh, we did Kate Upton's last feature film called uh, oh, wow. Adult Interference. It's a comedy, oh. sort of a 
classic raunchy 80s American comedy. That's the style of it. And uh, or 90s comedy. And then we have All Light Will End, which um, is a a horror, indie horror. So, uh, yeah, so All Light Everywhere, Galica and My American Uncle. That's very good. You also have the annual Imagine Science Film Festival. This year, the theme is resistance in all caps. Talk about that theme and, and why you chose it. Yeah, so every year we have this festival um, that kind of, you know, puts a spotlight on the latest crop of like science and cinema around the world. Uh, it usually happens in New York. I mean, it happens in New York, but right now because of the pandemic, we've been kind of it was virtual last year and it's going to be hybrid this year. Um, but every year we have a theme. Last year was migration. This year it's resistance. Um, and we love to have these kind of overarching themes as a way of kind of you know, having people submit work thinking about those themes. Um, and resistance is a really beautiful one because obviously we've been resisting politically. Um, there's been a lot of resistance, you know, a lot of movements that have kind of surged in the last year. But resistance is also interesting in terms of thinking about our resistance to the, vac- to the virus, um, resistance in our bodies, resistance as a form of expression, and yeah, it's exciting. We're, we're in the midst of organizing it and receiving films. Um, and it's a great event that I would love for you guys to come to um, because we have these amazing parties where all of these like scientists and artists and filmmakers come together and just exchange ideas. And one thing that I particularly love about the festival is this initiative called Symbiosis, mm. where we pair scientists and filmmakers together and they make films over the course of the week, they make films around the theme of resistance. And then we show those films at the end of the week. And um, so if you're like a science buff or you're interested in kind of science film and, or just kind of, you know, you, you need to come to the Imagine Science Film Festival and it's going to be our 14th year. Uh, hard to believe. Um, I started it when I was a PhD student and, uh, and you know, it comes every year it comes back. So. <laughs> Well, if there's anything I've learned in this conversation, it's that there's nothing you can't do and accomplish uh, once you set your your mind to it. Uh, Why don't you tell everybody where they can find you on social media or on the Internet or maybe even see your work or come to your festival or all the stuff? Yeah, I'm always so so difficult to self-promote, but um, but you can learn more about my work um, on my website, Alexi or Alexis with an S, gambis.com. Uh, a lot of my short films are actually available for free to watch. Um, but then, you know, if you want to learn more about what I do, um, well, Son of Monarchs also has its own website, sonofmonarchs.com. You can see right now we're going to Philadelphia um, next. We just wrapped Milwaukee. Um, so we're going to be at the Philadelphia Latino Film Festival. And then we have a few more festivals that are going to come up uh, and then the release in the fall. And then to follow kind of like more of the work that I do in terms of curating I would, I would go to labocine.com and just check out the films. Uh, we have like a live cinema where we showcase films. We have monthly issues. And then the festival um, is imaginesciencefilms.org. And that happens in October. And uh, I highly recommend people to submit work, come to the festival. Part of it will be virtual so you can, and it's actually going to be happening on the platform on labocine.com. So um, yeah, that's, that's it. And if you go to my website, you'll learn a little bit more about the films that I'm working on, including the next Jaguar, which I'm hoping to shoot in the Amazon next year. So. Amazing, amazing cover art on the next Jaguar as well. And thank you oh, for yeah. correcting my 
terrible pronunciation. La Bocine, La oh, Bocine is, is, the, is the Netflix of science films. And yeah, and, and this has been awesome. We'll, we'll end it here. Your students love you. You have students that have recommended you for podcasts and different interviews and things like that. You teach a great class on how uh, on film and biology. It's a there's no class like this. I don't think that I've ever heard of where you can go learn biology and film at the same time. How does it work? How do you make that work? Well, part of part of what I think deeply is that in order to um, train, you know, people to get engaged with science you know, the idea of making films is a great, you know, the same way as you do research, you go to the lab, you like experiment, you know, you do bench work. I think making a film is a really fascinating way for a student to kind of visualize the science. You know, if they have to make a film about, you know, CRISPR, for example, like how do they make it? You know, how do they tell a story around it? And so yes. that's why I combined film and biology, because especially when you're, you're, you know, at that age, like 18, 19, 20, you know, you still have like a malleable, you know, you don't have like those restrictions and you're open to it. And you're like, oh yeah, I'll make a film about CRISPR. And, um, and it gets people really excited about the science and also really excited about film and the potential of storytelling. And um, so, yeah, I've been teaching a class uh, kind of connecting film and biology. It's called Animal Perspectives. It's about how animals see the world, how, how we think about animals in science, film, um, you know, politics, literature, and, uh, and students make films every week, you know, exercises, and we talk about their films. Um, and I teach another class called DocuFiction, which is how do you combine documentary and fiction together? Mm. And, wh and why would you do that? And why do people, you know, do these kind of hybrid stories? And so, um, and I think it's important, again, all about like breaking categorizations, right? Like, and I think for, I love teaching because it's, it can be draining, but it's, you know, there's so much like idealism and you want to keep that fire going. You know, these kids are, are just amazing. And then, so, yeah, I've been teaching for 10 years now and it's, it's a good balance to, to making films, which is a whole, there's a lot of egos and it's a, it's a world that can be very kind of a, you know, overwhelming. So you have the teaching grounds me, it puts me back into my place. So. Absolutely. I, I love that. It reminds me of a Michael Ovitz quote, young people make their own rules. Yeah. And yeah. I think that's a, a great way and a great place to stop. Alexi, this has been a blast. I've learned so much. Oh, um, it's been so much fun to talk to you. Yeah. Likewise, I, I want us to stay in touch. I, I want to come to the film festival and uh, I'm going to come to Nashville as well. Yeah. And you come to Nashville, key to the city, guaranteed. Um, thank you so much. Thank you. And thank you to the team over there. And um, yeah, thanks for having me. I'm, I'm honored and I can't wait to, to, to visit and maybe to also collaborate on some stuff in the future. So yeah, absolutely. Let's collaborate. Let's do a round two if need be. And you heard it right here, folks. If you're listening, go follow this man. The Ascension is real. Alexa Gambus, thank you. Talk to you soon, man. Thank you, man. All right. Take care. Bye. Bye, man. You've been listening to the Make It Podcast. To find out more information about this week's topics, including links to relevant blog posts, projects, and indie creatives, please visit our website at www.bonsai.film. If you haven't already, you can join our podcast community on Apple Podcasts or the podcast app of your choice by searching for Make It Bonsai Creative, and the show will pop right up. 
You now have the opportunity to support the production of this podcast. If you love Make It and are a true fan of what we're trying to accomplish in the indie film community, please visit www.bonsai.film and click Contribute. Contributions start at only $5 monthly. You can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Bonsai Creative and on Facebook by searching for Bonsai Creative. You can provide feedback to us via email at contact at bonsai.film and you can follow me, Chris, on Twitter at Flaming Your Heart. That's F-L-A-M-E-I-N-U-R-H-E-A-R-T. And of course, if you're looking to take a big step towards your filmmaking success, go to www.bonsai.film and click on services to explore a variety of offerings from keynotes and panels to pitch readiness assessments and so much more. You have everything to gain. Until next time, be better, be creative, be engaged, and thank you for listening.